seated. Would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9? January is the month that Southern Baptists and many other denominations uh, set aside to celebrate the sanctity of human life. And that will be our focus this morning. From Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will help me now to handle your word accurately and reverently. I recognize that there are tons of emotions that surround uh, controversial issues like abortion. I pray that you would enable us to not be driven by emotion, but be driven by the authority of the Holy Scriptures that we cherish as your God-breathed word. Father, please make the principles of Scripture very clear, and please move us to submit to your authority, obeying you in all things, especially in matters related to your image in humanity and the sanctity of human life. In Jesus' name, amen. The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. So it is when the baby sleeps peacefully and his mother's lap is curled. But what when the cradle is empty, when no lullaby is heard, when no love, no warmth, no tenderness, and a mother's heart is stirred? When the hand that should rock the cradle is the hand that, should take the, that takes the pen and signs the warrant for the infant's death, oh God, help us then. When the hand that should rock the cradle is the hand that takes the picket sign and cries for the right that would commit humanity's grimmest crime, what hopelessness it is pervades this earth's blackest and darkest night. When the hand that should rock the infant is the hand that takes its life. On January the 22nd, 1973, a group of black-robed Supreme Court justices reinstituted child sacrifice in the United States of America by legalizing abortion on demand. Jane Roe of Texas had been raped and had conceived a child as a result of that rape. The laws of the state of Texas, like most other states in the U.S., prohibited abortion even in such cases Abortion was legal only in cases where necessary to save the life of the mother. And Miss Rowe felt that her constitutional rights had been infringed and ultimately appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court contrived a right to privacy from the 14th Amendment, which they said justified abortion on demand. Now, the fact is the 14th Amendment has nothing to do with the right to privacy, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the right to abortion. The 14th Amendment was actually a post-Civil War amendment to our Constitution guaranteeing the rights of freed slaves. Now, the fact is that it couldn't be clearer that the intention of our founding fathers 
was to honor the sanctity of life. The Declaration of Independence said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Idly, the 14th Amendment actually quotes this portion of the Declaration of Independence. Section 1 states, Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property. But in an astonishing contradiction, the very amendment that guarantees the protection of life was used to assault human life. Abortion was legalized. Now, due to the length of the legal process, by the time all this was settled in the courts, Jane Roe had given birth to her child, and the child was adopted. But the decision had been made, and a legal precedent had been set that put the government seal on a portion by demand to this very day. Now, the pro-abortionists argued back then that Legalization of abortion would make abortion safer, but it wouldn't increase the number of abortions in our country. They were obviously not math geniuses, because on the contrary, their clever projections could not have been more wrong. Since Roe versus Wade, well over 53 million babies have been aborted in the United States. The Centers for Disease Control is known to publish very, very conservative figures on the number of abortions in our country. And even according to their very conservative figures, figures in 2014, 6,000, excuse me, 652,639 babies were aborted in the U.S., even by their conservative number, that's 54,386 babies every month, 12,085 babies every week, 1,788 babies every day, and 74 babies every hour. That's right. For the duration of our worship service this Sunday morning, 74 babies will be aborted. Now, as I said, those are very, very conservative figures. The Guttmacher Institute of Planned Parenthood publishes statistics based on surveys of actual abortion providers, and their numbers are considerably higher. Uh, they have determined that 926,200 babies were aborted in the U.S. in 2014, which, by the way, is the lowest year of abortion since Roe v. Wade, by that estimate, 105 babies will be aborted during the hour that we spend in worship this morning. This death toll is nothing less than staggering, especially when you put it in comparison to all of the casualties of American soldiers during previous conflicts. About 25,000 Americans died in the Revolutionary War. About half a million died in the Civil War. About 
117,000 died in the First World War. About 407,000 died in the Second World War and so forth. But more American babies die through abortion every single year than all of the casualties in Ingalls, any single one of these conflicts. As a matter of fact, there have been several years in our recent history in which more babies were aborted in that single year than American casualties in all of these wars combined. Perhaps by now your mind is boggled with statistics, and I don't want to do that to you, but let me throw out one more number that I think is the most sobering of them all. According to research conducted by the National Institute of Health, one out of every eight women having abortions identified themselves as born-again Christians or evangelical Christians at the time they had the abortion. Now, these aren't ladies who had an abortion and then later professed faith in Christ. These are women who had abortions when they professed to be born-again Christians. And since Southern Baptists are the largest evangelical denomination in the United States, I'm afraid we can be quite confident that the bulk of this 13% belong to our own denominations, the own denomination. You say, how can that be true? Well, don't forget that it was only a few decades ago that Southern Baptists had the prestige of having both a president and vice president who belonged to our denomination. And don't forget, both of them were decidedly advocates of abortion on demand. I've puzzled as to why some professing Christians have no conviction against abortion. I think it's because some are confused about the realities of abortion. Some, when they debate this ethically, focus on those tough cases like saving the wife of the mother and so forth, not knowing that in 93% of the instances of abortion in our country, there are no complicating factors like this at all. This is simply the preference of the mother and possibly the father. They are purely elective abortions. I think that some people have no strong convictions about this because simply they're not under the authority of Scripture. They do not honor the lordship of Jesus Christ and they've not searched what the Bible teaches about this issue and then bowed beneath the weight of God's own statements. But I think, on the other hand, that there are some people in our evangelical and even Southern Baptist churches who are honestly confused about what the Bible teaches on this issue. And that confusion is partly our fault. The reality is that if you look at the biblical verses that are most commonly cited by people in the pro-life movement, they are verses that are being abused, that are being taken out of their original biblical context and being given a meaning that God never intended. 
I think the favorite verse of the pro-life movement is probably Deuteronomy 30, 19, which says, choose life. The fact is that verse doesn't have anything to do with the abortion debate directly. The command choose life was urging the Israelites to obey the principles of God's covenant so that they would not come under his sentence of death. The abortion issue was not in view when that commandment was given. And so when people see scriptures mishandled and abused in this manner, they conclude, at least in the back of their mind, well, the Bible must not have anything to say about this issue, so I am free to make this moral decision completely on my own. When in fact, the scriptures make very clear statements about the abortion issue. It's true that the Bible never gives us a direct, thou shalt not abort a child, but it nevertheless gives us very clear principles that apply to this important moral and ethical issue. For example, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Which should lead us to pose this question, is abortion an act of murder? And the scripture teaches clearly, yes, it is. Now, why would we say that? Well, unfortunately, when we discuss whether abortion is murder, the debate typically swirls around uh, medical science and medical technology. When is the fetus viable and at what point does it develop this and that? Now, the fact is, medical technology is increasingly decidedly on the side of those in the pro-life movement. Uh, We have discovered that 18 to 25 days after conception, a baby's heart is already beating. 40 days after conception, brain activity is recorded. By eight weeks after conception, the baby feels pain, can grasp, can swim, and the fingerprints that that child will bear for the rest of their life are already fully formed. By the ninth and 10th weeks after conception, 95% of the known structures, features, and organs of the Bible are already in place. Obviously, human life begins far earlier than many have claimed. I would argue that it actually begins much earlier than this. When our eldest daughter, Rachel, was only two years old, I was preparing for a sermon for Sanctity of Life Sunday, and I was watching a video about fetal development. And a picture of a fetus eight weeks after conception showed up on the television screen. And Rachel, two years old, skipped into the room. And I just sat there silently to see what her reaction would be to that image. Big smile came across her face as she looked at the screen, and she said, What a beautiful baby. And then she skipped right back out of the room. I thought amazing that a two-year-old child can recognize what many American adults have refused to admit, that this child, even at this stage, so early after conception, is a baby. Now, fortunately, the Scripture gives us very clear principles for defining murder 
human life, the sanctity of life, that make a lot of these medical discussions really non-essential. The verse that I'm talking about is the one that we read this morning, Genesis 9-6. There, God defines murder simply as the shedding of the blood of one made in God's image. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. What God is telling us is that the theological principle that makes murder so despicable is that all humanity was created in the image and likeness of God so that any attack on human life is an attack on God himself by proxy. We could say it this way. Any attack on human life, since human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, is an attack on God himself in effigy. John Knox was a controversial figure who was largely responsible for sparking the Protestant Reformation in Scotland hundreds of years ago and returning the people of that land back to a belief in the true biblical gospel. After he left the country in 1555 and 1556, the prelates of the Pope tried the reformer in absentia condemned him for heresy, and then vowed to put him to death. But since John Knox had left the country and they couldn't land their hands on him, they decided that they would burn him in effigy, which meant that they made an image of John Knox using cloth that they stuffed with straw to make what we might call a mannequin, dressed it in clothes that looked like John Knox's clothes, and then they set it ablaze. Since they couldn't kill... Knox, they were determined to kill a representation of him, burn him in effigy. And what Genesis 9-6 is telling us is, is when we attack any human life, since all humanity is made in the image and likeness of God, is an attack on God by proxy, an attack on God in effigy. And it is then an unthinkable crime. Now, since murder is by definition an attack on anyone made in the image and likeness of God, the question we need to ask in determining whether abortion is murder is, at what point does an unborn child receive the image and likeness of God? Well, Genesis 1.27 tells us that Adam was created in the image and likeness of God, right? But then Genesis 5.3 adds that when Adam was 130 years old, he fathered a child, get this, in his likeness and according to his image and named him Seth. Adam's made in the image and likeness of God, then he fathers a child Seth in his own image and likeness, which is in turn the image and likeness of God, right? So what does Scripture mean when it says Adam fathered Seth in the image and likeness? The fact is that the Hebrew verb translated as fathered here can mean conceive 
or can mean give birth to. But it's always easy to tell which is intended based on the gender of the subject. (laughs) Obviously, if the verb means give birth to, then the subject is going to be female. But if it refers to the act of conception, then the subject is going to be male. Since we have a male subject of the verb here, it clearly refers to the act of conception. Hence, babies receive the image and likeness of their parents and hence of God himself at the very moment of conception. That's why the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 in Article 15 on Christians in the Social Order says that Christians are obligated to speak in behalf of the unborn and defend the sanctity of life from conception to natural death. We recognize that during that entire time frame, human beings bear the image and likeness of God Thus, an attack upon them is a murderous act. Another question that I think is helpful for us to explore is, does God value the life of the unborn as highly as he values the life of an adult, a mature human being? Does he regard the murder of the unborn as seriously as the murder of of an adult? Once again, the answer to that is an adamant yes. There's a very important passage in the Bible that deals directly with the penalty for causing the death of an unborn child. Unfortunately, because this verse has been mistranslated in some popular versions, some have applied the verse in the very opposite way of what God originally intended. So it's important for us to focus on this carefully. The text is Exodus 21, 22 through 25, which says, If men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury, I'm going to argue either to the mother or to the child, The one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands for him, and he must pay according to judicial assessment. If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. Now, when I refer to how some popular versions mistranslate this, I mean that some versions render the Hebrew here in such a way that it implies that the only concern is the health and well-being of the mother. But the Hebrew text is clearly addressing more. If the scripture were focused here just on the health and well-being of this mother who's involved in the fight then it would have used the Hebrew construction la, which said, would mean uh, if there is no injury to her. But there is no la here in the Hebrew text, and that means the phrase, but there is no injury, applies to both the mother and to the prematurely born child. 
You put it all together, and this is what you come up with. God says that if two men are in a fight and they accidentally hit a pregnant woman so that she gives premature birth, if both the, the mother and child are okay, then there will be no serious penalty. But if either the mother or her child suffer injury, then there are going to be serious consequences. And the principle of lex talionis ticks in, which means if you knocked a tooth out of the mouth of either the mother or that prematurely born child, then the person responsible loses their tooth. If you knocked an eye out of the mother or the prematurely born child, then the person responsible loses that eye and so forth. All the way up to the principle life for life. In other words, if the person who rendered that blow takes the life of the mother or takes the life of the unborn child, prematurely born child, they forfeit their life as well. Consequently, it cannot be more clear that God values the life of the unborn in the same way that he values the life of a mature and fully developed human being. So much so that causing the death of an unborn child in biblical law deserves execution, the death penalty under biblical law. Now, I recognize that since we don't have an explicit command that says, thou shalt not abort an unborn child, some people might say, well, it seems like you're doing an awful lot of, of reading between the lines in these Old Testament commands and principles. I'm not so sure about this. Well, maybe it's helpful for us to go back and look at how the earliest church interpreted these principles that we've just discussed. By the earliest church, I mean the church at the end of the first century A.D. The early second century A.D. When people had direct access to the testimony of the apostles. Had been their friends, their close associates, and so forth. Surely these people are in a good position to know what the Bible intended to teach about the issue of abortion. Let me give you three examples of the earliest church's teaching about this issue. One document that you need to be familiar with is called the Didache. Didache means the teaching, and it's short for the teaching of the 12 apostles. Uh, This was a handbook about church practices that was traced all the way back to the apostles' authority, though it was not written directly by any of the 12. Didache 2.2, written in the late 1st or very early 2nd century A.D., interprets the 6th commandment as prohibiting both infanticide, the murder of a child that's already been born, as well as abortion, the murder of an unborn child. Didache 2.2 says, You shall not murder children by abortion nor kill what has been conceived. It's very, very clear in that statement 
that any attack on the life of a child after conception is viewed as abortion, which in turn is viewed as murder. There's almost an identical statement to this in the epistle of Barnabas, chapter 19, verse 5. Now, the epistle of Barnabas wasn't written by the Barnabas who was the traveling companion of the apostle Paul during the first missionary journey. But Barnabas is a very, very early Christian who writes at the end of the first century or very early second century A.D. And he likewise says... You shall not murder children by abortion, nor kill what has been conceived. Another book called The Revelation of Peter was written in the very early 2nd century, and it treats the issue at even greater length. Not only does this document tell us that abortion is wrong or that it is murder, it describes in vivid detail the penalty that will befall any who have been responsible for an abortion and have refused to repent and receive God's forgiveness. The text says, Near this hellish flame there is a great and very deep pit, and into it there flow all kinds of things from everywhere, judgment, horrifying things, and excretions and the women who aborted their children are swallowed up by this to their very necks and are punished with great pain these are they who have procured abortions and have ruined the work of God which he has created opposite them is another place where the children sit but both alive they cry unto God and lightnings go forth from those children which pierced the eyes of those who by their fornication brought about the children's destruction. The men and women stand opposite them, and their children are in a place of delight while their parents are in a place of punishment and cursing. And the children sigh and cry to God because of the sin of their parents, saying, These are they who neglected us and cursed us and transgressed your commandment. They killed us. They withheld from us the light which you appointed for all. And the milk of the mothers flows from their breast and congeals and smells foul. And from it come forth the maggots that devour the flesh, which turn and torture them forever with their husbands, because they forsook the commandment of God and killed their own children. The children are given over to the caretaking angel, but those who slew them will be tortured forever, for God wills it to be so. Doesn't seem to me like the early church tiptoed around the issue of abortion. It was clearly viewed as murder, and it was a sin that was recognized to deserve God's severe and eternal punishment should those responsible refuse to repent and believe. The Bible is not silent on the abortion issue. The early church was not silent on the abortion issue. And the modern-day church must not be silent on the abortion issue either. As our own Baptist Confession says in section 15, we should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. 
And I would argue that when we speak on behalf of the unborn, we need to remember that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that most needs to be spoken. Though political involvement and cultural engagement are certainly to be encouraged, the ultimate solution to the scourge of abortion in our culture is the gospel of Jesus Christ because only the gospel of Jesus Christ can renew the human mind and transform the human heart. That's why our same confession says, the means and methods used for the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration That is the new birth of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. Our Baptist confession reminds us that activism might be good, but ultimately evangelism is vastly more important. Our own confession reminds us that it's great for us to exercise our responsibilities as citizens and cast our vote for pro-life candidates. It's important for us to write our letters to the editor and maybe even participate in pro-life marches. But more than anything else, we must share the gospel of Jesus Christ for it alone renews the human mind and transforms the human heart. In my early days as a pastor, I was very heavily involved in the pro-life movement attending marches, uh, uh, petitioning, and that kind of thing, and ultimately determined that was not the best way forward. And a man who was a member of my church got very, very angry with me uh, as I became less involved politically and accused me of compromise. And when he just wouldn't let off of it, I finally said to him, let me ask you this question. Through all of your marching and all of your picketing at abortion clinics, how many people's minds have you actually changed about the abortion issue? Oh, well, Pastor, no, how many? I wouldn't let him off the hook. He said, well, I'm not aware of a single one. I said, well, last Thursday night, I shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with the wife of our mayor, and she believed in Jesus Christ as God's Savior and King, She has now come under the authority of the Holy Scriptures, and she has completely reversed her opinion on the abortion issue and is now twisting the arm of her husband to stand for the pro-life cause. My own experience confirms for me what the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 wisely said, that the best way to transform human society is one soul at a time. As people believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, come under the authority of the Holy Scripture, and their whole view of the world is turned upside down. Now, according to the Guttmacher Institute, one out of every four American women by the time they are age 45 have had an abortion. One out of every four. And based on those statistics, I recognize it's possible that someone in this very room may have had an abortion, uh, taken someone else to have an abortion, paid for an abortion, or even performed an abortion. 
So it's very important that we hear again a clarification that I've been careful to make throughout this message. When I describe the horrible judgment of God that would befall those responsible for the sin of abortion, I was very careful to say if they have not repented and believed. Because the glory of the gospel is that God forgives the most heinous of sinners. When you think about biblical history, you'll be stunned to remember that some of the men that we most greatly honor in the Bible are forgiven murderers. Moses, who murdered the Egyptian taskmaster. David, who murdered Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. And yes, even the Apostle Paul, who had his hand in the murder of Deacon Stephen. And yet these men were amazingly forgiven by God's great mercy. Their lives were dramatically transformed so that they became powerful tools in the hand of God. Their examples assure us that our own sin can also be forgiven, can be erased from the sight of the heavenly judge. Even murderers can appear before God in judgment as pure and innocent as if they had never sinned at all. Because a loving Savior came into this world and lived the perfect life that we can't live and then went to the cross and was punished for our sins in our place so that we don't have to be punished. And not only was he punished for our sin, He promises that we can be rewarded for his righteousness. That forgiveness and that undeserved reward are ours as a free gift when we believe in Jesus as God, Savior, and King. When we recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, God in human form, the Savior who paid the penalty for our sins and our place, and the King who has the right to rule and reign over our lives. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I want to read these words from 1 Timothy 1 of a forgiven murderer. He says, I give thanks to Jesus Christ our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, one who was former a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man, even a murderer. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the very worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his extraordinary patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. The same mercy that this forgiven murderer received, everyone in this room right now can receive. If you simply trust Jesus as your God, Savior, and King. If you've not done so, I invite you to pray with me right now and say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. 
I know that I deserve your punishment. But I believe you died on the cross for me. You were punished for my sins in my place so that I don't have to be punished. But please forgive me. Erase my sin from your sight and make me a new and different person who honors you by the way I live. Be my God, my Savior, and my King. If that's your prayer, in just a moment when we sing a hymn together, I'm going to invite you to come forward and tell me that you've asked Christ to forgive you. I'll answer any questions you might have. I'll tell you what the next steps are in your Christian life. It may be that you've been a Christian for a long, long time. But the fact is, you've just not been very concerned about the sanctity of human life. You've not done what you can to stop the murder of the unborn by casting the right vote, by making the right statement, and most of all, by sharing the life-transforming gospel, which is the only real hope for changing the world around us. I urge you to commit yourself right now to speak up, to speak out, and most of all, to faithfully share the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we commit this invitation to you. We pray that the truth has been clear, that your Holy Spirit will impress it upon every heart, and that we will leave this room as changed people today because of what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?